tens of thousands of farmers are peacefully protesting. Border, Gazipur border, but hazaro ke saan. Twitter blocks hundred to hundred and twenty accounts. Leaving one protester dead and more than eighty officers injured. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at the Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Here are some of the media stories we're looking at this week. The farmers' protests in India, they keep growing, despite the Modi government's best efforts to contain the reporting on them. Sports stadiums are empty, but broadcasters are bursting with ideas on how to make up for the missing fans. China's CGTN TV. British broadcasting regulators have taken it off the air. They're not buying the channel's story on who controls its output. And oblivious in Myanmar. Coup or no coup, just keep on dancer-sizing. Narendra Modi has dealt with demonstrations before, but what the Indian Prime Minister is currently confronted with, millions of farmers protesting nationwide and in the heart of the capital, is unprecedented. The demonstrations are over recently passed agricultural laws that open the Indian market to new private sector players that farmers say expose them to corporate exploitation. The reporting has revealed yet again the shortcomings of the Indian news media, the hundreds of privately owned news channels. For years, their coverage of India's vast rural economy has fallen pitifully short. And there's a fundamental ideological bias at play. The corporate ownership of those news channels means that most of them will be pro the privatization of just about anything. Demonstrators and journalists out to tell a different story are dealing with internet outages, police intimidation and charges of sedition brought by the state. That is a sure sign of a government that knows it has a giant PR problem on its hands. Our starting point this week is New Delhi. This is a story about representation. Whose voice is heard? Which side is having its story reported? It's about scale, the numbers, because it's unfolding in India. Hundreds of thousands of protesters, most of them farmers, representing an agricultural sector that more than half a billion people rely on for their livelihood. And it's about the more than 400 all-news channels, the thousands of Indian newspapers, that the demonstrators say have let them down. This is a form of urban terrorism that has to be actually condemned in any individual who was there should be arrested. Media ab satta se sawal karne ke bajaye ab jo hai vipaksha se sawal karne lag gayi hai. Patrakar bhaiyo san nivedan hai ki aap desh ke liye kaam karein. The disgraceful way of protesting by the so-called farmers and today they will not be addressed as farmers. These people are hooligans, these are goons. रहे ये मंत्री हैं संत्री हैं तो पांच साल के हैं ये चले जाएंगे सब आपकी जो जनता है जो जो देश के वासी हैं उनका साथ देना चाहिए बड़े चैनल वालों मैं आपसे एक बात बता देता हूं कि झूठ की भी एक सीमित होती है जब तक आप झूठ जब तक आप भी गलत हैं आपको बिल्कुल सब कुछ स्पष्ट क्लियर है 
Indian farmers were struggling long before the pandemic hit. Suicide rates in those fields and villages are shockingly high. The country's agricultural sector has been in desperate need of reform. What brought the protesters, many of them Punjabi Sikhs, to the capital was the passage of three new laws that significantly reduced the regulatory role the state has long played in Indian farming. Prime Minister Narendra Modi says he's out to unshackle the food industry of regulators and bureaucrats to drive growth. The farmers argue the new laws were rushed through Parliament and leave them at the mercy of the large corporations they must deal with to get their products to market, companies whose hunger for profits can be insatiable. From day one, most of the mainstream media the main agenda has been to demonize farmers, to label them as Khalistanis, which is really an extreme uh, secessionist movement that we saw in Punjab back in the 80s, which is to basically label them as terrorists. To say that these guys actually don't know what they're protesting about, that they are illiterate, they haven't even read the laws, they're just out there to create a nuisance. Part of the reason that we are getting this kind of very skewed pro-government coverage is to do with the ownership structures and uh, the uh, representation in the newsroom. There were abuses being hurled at the Prime Minister and at the current government. Ownership in India of media is limited to a handful of families who uh, have corporate backgrounds. Moreover, the newsrooms are staffed by largely what is an Hindu upper caste from the Brahmin or the mercantile caste. In terms of numbers, the castes that represent farmers are far greater than these two castes, but those castes are not represented in the newsroom at all. Wherever mainstream news outlets fail their audiences, alternative sources, primarily digital ones, fill the void. On this story, outlets like Caravan India, an investigative magazine, and news websites like The Wire, Scroll, and News Laundry have been doing just that. Farmers have turned into citizen journalists, using their phones to seed the Indian information space with their side of the story, and setting up Twitter accounts like Trolley Times and Tractor to Twitter to keep their growing audiences updated. Before this protest, I was doing what every other Punjabi is doing, taking care of our cattle, going to fields. But when this protest started, the farmers had announced that they will march to Delhi. I thought this is going to be historic, and I need to be there. Punjabi media was already covering the protest, but no one was doing it for the international audience or for the other people. So that's why I started recording those videos and putting them on Twitter. And then some videos went wild, and people started following me, and now I am here. Yeah, since 24th of November, I have not gone back to my village or to my home. January 26th is Republic Day, marking the writing of India's constitution. On that day, the farm protest story took a significant turn. After months of peaceful demonstrations that had failed to produce meaningful negotiations with the Modi government, let alone results, the farmers marched into downtown New Delhi and took over a symbolic site, the Red Fort, where a few of them unfurled a Sikh flag. They handed their critics, including those in the corporate media, exactly what they needed. Images suggesting the farm protesters are separatists, 
which they are not. This is where I think the farmers or whoever is backing them scored a unnecessary self-goal. Till that time, people at least had some general empathy for farmers because everybody in India knows that farmers are by and large poorer and weaker than them. Right. Several attempts were made to hoist the flag on the monument's dome as well. India watched horrified as anarchy was unleashed on the streets of the national capital. But this made them feel that what the hell are you doing? This is one day when we celebrate something. But on that day, you actually go and raise a very partisan flag on a national day. So that is where they screwed up. And the man climbing up the flagpole with the flag uh, became the defining moment. But I think that's really because the narrative had been set two months ago. The media then went about looking for images that validated that narrative, that these guys are anti-nationals and these guys are here to create nuisance. The Modi government has proven to be extremely sensitive to news coverage or commentary that strays from that model. It has jammed internet access around protest sites in New Delhi ordered Twitter to block accounts of farmers' unions and news outlets like The Caravan, and charged certain journalists with sedition over their reporting. But Modi has little or no control over what is said outside India. And when a global pop star and a climate activist tweeted in support of the farmers, the government called those tweets sensationalist, neither accurate nor responsible. The BJP's followers told the outsiders to butt out. Effigies were burned. There is no masking the intent behind the state's efforts to control the narrative by dubious legal means if necessary, and the unmistakably chilling effect that has had on journalism in a country that still calls itself the world's biggest democracy. Such is the arbitrariness of this government. You can suddenly expect a Twitter handle to go down. You can suddenly expect a journalist to be picked up. They're trying to second guess what the government likes or does not like or what could get us into trouble is a waste of our time. So I mean, we continue to report the way we have always reported, but it has had a hugely chilling effect on much of the media. As far as journalists being targeted are concerned, I am completely on their side. I don't think any government should be launching police cases against journalists, especially when they're trying to do a job in a difficult situation. On the other side, I think as a journalist, you should not be adding fuel to the fire. So I think journalists also need to be careful about what they tweet. If you look at the media and its role that it's supposed to be playing in a democracy, it's completely crumbling. And when that crumbles, you can't then just say that India is a great democracy because we hold elections. Is that enough or is that it? Uh, the media has to play an important role in informing those electoral choices. And if that's not happening in democracy, how robust is that democracy? People need to ask that question of their media. Turning to the UK now, where the broadcasting regulator, Ofcom, has taken CGTN, that's the English language international news channel that's funded by the Chinese government, off the British airwaves. Flo Phillips has been in touch with Ofcom over this. Flo, is this the final nail in the coffin for CGTN in the UK? And if so, what led to it? 
issues over ownership, Richard. Ofcom found that the license holder for CGTN, a company called Star China Media Limited, didn't have editorial control over its output, which is a key condition set by Ofcom for all broadcasters in the UK. Now, CGTN did try to transfer the license, but Ofcom wasn't satisfied with the new body, suggesting that it was ultimately controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, also not allowed under UK broadcast law. Now, when I spoke to Ofcom, they said that they'd given the network, quote, numerous opportunities to come into compliance, but it hadn't done so. So they considered it appropriate to withdraw the license for CGTN to broadcast in the UK. And this past Thursday, it was taken off the air. Ever since 2019, when the channel launched in the UK, built that big broadcast center in London, it's been in and out of difficulty with Ofcom, but typically out of the content, its news output. This was an ownership issue. Presumably that's an easier thing for a regulator to nail down. Exactly. Last year, Ofcom cited two breaches by CGTN relating to news content. In May, it found that the network had failed to preserve, quote, due impartiality in its coverage of the Hong Kong protests. And then just two months later, it upheld a complaint by a former British journalist, Peter Humphrey, that in 2013, CGTN, formerly known as CCTV, had improperly broadcast a confession that he had actually been forced to make on camera after getting arrested in Shanghai. Now, Ofcom has put out a statement saying that they're due to reach a decision shortly on sanctions against CGTN relating to a variety of ongoing investigations, but that they have nothing to do with the ruling that's come down this week. So where does the story go from here? Do we await the inevitable tit-for-tat response from Beijing? Well, that is the pattern when it comes to China and Western countries and their sparring over different journalistic practices and brands. This is CGTN. The day after Ofcom's ruling, CGTN came out swinging, saying that the entire investigation had been, quote, manipulated by extreme right-wing organisations and anti-China forces. And while this ruling only affects CGTN in the UK, for a channel that was launched to improve China's global image with English-speaking audiences and has sunk a significant amount of money into that London hub, it's got to be a real setback. Okay, thanks, Flo. This week marks one of the marquee events on the American sporting calendar. It's Super Bowl Sunday, the National Football League's championship game, which will kick off in Tampa, Florida. Social distancing requirements there mean that two-thirds of the seats will remain empty. However, with so many fans stuck at home, the TV ratings ought to be just fine. This pandemic has emptied sports stadiums of fans. It's forced leagues and broadcasters to put on their thinking caps. As a result, Live sports coverage has turned into one of the most innovative and creative spaces in the television industry. We've seen cardboard cutouts of football supporters, robot cheerleaders, CGI crowds, fake fan sounds. Sometimes the gimmicks are as entertaining as the players on the field. The Listening Post's Johanna Hoos now on watching sports in pandemic times and the lengths that broadcasters will go to to keep fans tuning in. Welcome to Anfield. As you can see, it's a little bit eerie, certainly with uh, what we might have been expecting. It's been a huge watershed moment, the pandemic. Transformed sport, how we broadcast. Obviously, sport runs on passion and emotion, and some of the games lack the intensity and the passion because there were no crowds there. You certainly lack it from a TV experience. When we first uh, kind of went under, uh, the thought was, 
oh, oh my God, there's, there's no fans, we can't possibly do this. It was definitely harder without, you know, the spectacle and fans. The most important economic aspect of sport is the TV audience. But the TV audience needs co-present audience. I liken them to extras on a film, except they pay to be there. Um, so you can't have a battle scene with, without extras. And I don't think you can have a really a compelling TV sport contest without an audience on screen. And so, as the players have come back onto fields, pitches and courts around the world, sports leagues and broadcasters have pulled out every trick in the book, and some new ones, to create the illusion that the audience, the spectators, never really left. Low wing. Look close. There, there's Wheezy, right there. Efforts to recreate the fans in the seats have ranged from high-tech creative... Cardboard cutouts and he almost took that guy's head off. Quite questionable and basic. To the utterly bizarre. Stands have been filled with toys, and in the case of South Korea's FC Seoul, even a sex doll or two. Some major broadcasters, however, including Sky Sports and BT in the UK, have decided it isn't so much the visual presence of supporters as much as their audio impact that really gives fans the sense that they are watching with a crowd. Sky Sports was one of the first networks to go all in with audio. For its coverage of the Premier League, it teamed up with EA Sports, the company behind the FIFA video games. They have one of the most extensive and sophisticated libraries of sound effects, which is actually what makes their games as immersive as they are. Sky Sports acquired those sounds, and they are now key to the viewing experience that they are trying to create. And audio engineers like Adam Perry have their work cut out for them. Fortunately, we were given that freedom as operators to try and really tell a story. We weren't just pushing a button and then hoping for the best. So, I would go through, um, I would listen to each individual chant, and, and on this occasion I have 10 per club. Another sound that we have available um, is a bed, and which is, it's kind of just the sound of a stadium as if people were mingling, kind of looking for their seats. And so I'd bring in those chants again. So starting to kind of build up, you know, how you feel the game might sound as it's live. And then against that, what I would be checking is my goal reactions. So I can push it really loud or I could have it soft. But sometimes what can happen is you may think it's a goal, so you'll trigger the goal sample. But then you realise as the commentators are speaking and explaining, oh, you know, unfortunately the player missed, you're kind of like, oh, I've, there's, I've, I've got that wrong. And then what we are able to do if we're fast enough is then trigger off a misreaction. And then kind of cover up the mistake. Despite all the work going into the audio design of these games, initially it looked like the fake sounds wouldn't catch on. When the Premier League resumed in June, Twitter was alight with skeptical fans. However, Sky Sports says that 75% of those watching at home, and it definitely includes me, prefer the audio enhanced option over the silent one. 
sports broadcasting is a big money business. Standard Media Index, a company that tracks TV ad spending in the United States, estimates that the suspension of just one league, the National Basketball Association, or NBA, cost ESPN, TNT and ABC almost a quarter of a billion dollars. To ensure advertisers would return and that fans continue to see value in their sports channel subscriptions, some broadcasters have gone deluxe. They aren't just faking sounds of the live event, they are using augmented reality technology to create the visuals of a packed arena. I just logged on to what I think is going to be quite a bizarre experience, the NBA's virtual fan zone. The league teamed up with Microsoft to livestream supporters into the stands and I just took one of those virtual seats. It means I can cheer on the players, I can interact with all the other digital fans in the seats, all while sitting on my sofa on the other side of the Atlantic. Fox Sports took it even further. For its coverage of Major League Baseball, it has populated the stadium with computer-generated fans. Using graphical gaming engines, we had visually replaced the crowd, and this wasn't too trick or fool the audience into thinking there actually was a full crowd, but just to normalize the experience. And we felt that, again, as game presenters, seeing that full stadium was something that the audience could appreciate. However, when you choose to visually replace crowd, it's exponentially more difficult because you need to accurately track all of the cameras, make sure that you have laser scans of the stadiums to map the crowds in, and then finally figure out how they should be reacting. So there is a litany of complexity involved with that. These visual developments are working with the developments in sound um, to try and get as close to reality, the simulation of reality, as possible. They have had to give everybody a sense, the dedicated viewer, the casual viewer, that this is worth watching. It is not an inferior product. It's not absurd. If it is a fake, then it's a clever fake. You are, just as with any other kind of fictional television program, you're willing to suspend your disbelief. When it comes to manipulating viewing experiences, some TV networks have had an advantage. As a result of the pandemic, leagues like the NHL and NBA were moved into so-called bubbles, sport complexes that were turned into COVID isolation zones and broadcast hubs, hosting not just every player in every game, but all broadcast staff for the entirety of the 2020 season. For channels like ESPN and NBC, two of the networks airing these leagues, these indoor, confined spaces were a lot easier to dress up in the absence of fans than large, open-air arenas. Number one, I think, is logistics. Number two, it's just depending on what the sport can bear. For instance, in NASCAR, which was one of the other first sports that was back, by not having fans allowed us to use some camera angles that we hadn't used before. So there's definitely some pluses and minuses in terms of uh, what you're able to do. There have been a lot of positives. One of the big wins has been the choice of being able to listen to the game, the, the natural sound of the game. And I think what you've been able to pick up is a lot of tactical conversations. You know, fascinating to hear people like Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp, how they go about coaching their teams on the benches. The coronavirus isn't going anywhere just yet. And so for the time being, the fans and the stands are going to be mostly digital ones. 
For people tuning in from home, despite all the advanced graphics and audio tricks, sports programming may never match the heights of its pre-pandemic quality. Because when it comes to televised sporting spectacles, it's not just about what the players bring to the field, it's also about what the broadcasters and the crowds bring to the game. And finally, unless you had your feeds switched off this past week, you probably saw the video of that dancer-size instructor in Myanmar doing her thing on camera, blissfully unaware that the military vehicles on the move right behind her were on their way to conduct a coup d'etat and arrest Aung San Suu Kyi. She just kept on dancing. Very 2021. Can you imagine such a thing happening back in the day with a story like the fall of the Berlin Wall? or the protests at Tiananmen Square, because the internet can. We'll see you next time, here at The Listening Post. Jangan senang dulu semua tinggal waktu 